Section 8 of A Life's Morning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. A Life's Morning by George Gissing. Section 8. Chapter 5. Part 2. At the head of the quarries, the two paused to look back upon Dunfield. The view from this point was extensive and would have been interesting but for the existence of the town itself. It was seen to lie in a broad valley along which a river flowed. The remoter districts were pleasantly wooded, and only the murkiness of the far sky told that a yet larger centre of industry lurked beyond the horizon. Dunfield offered no prominent features, save the chimneys of its factories and its fine church, the spire of which rose high above surrounding buildings. Over all hung a canopy of foul vapour, heavy, pestiferous. Take in your fingers a spray from one of the trees, even here on the heath, and its touch left the soil. "'How I wish you could see the views from the hills in Surrey!' Emily exclaimed when they had stood in silence. "'I can imagine nothing more delightful in English scenery. It realises my idea of perfect rural beauty, as I got it from engravings after the landscape painters.' Oh, you shall go there with me some day. Her father smiled and shook his head a little. Perhaps, he said, and added a favourite phrase of his, while there is life, there is hope. Of course there is, rejoined Emily, with gaiety which was unusual in her. No smoke, the hills blue against a lovely sky. Trees covered with the very roots of greenness. Rich old English homes and cottages. Oh, you know the kind, your ideal of a cottage. Low-tiled roofs, lattice windows, moss and lichen and climbing flowers, farmyards sweet with hay, and gleaming dairies. That country is my home. With how rich a poetry it clothed itself in her remembrance, the land of milk and honey, indeed, her heart's home. It was all but impossible to keep the secret of her joy, yet she had resolved to do so, and her purpose held firm. I am very glad indeed that you are so happy there, said her father, looking at her with that quiet absorption in another's mood of which he was so capable. But it will be London through the winter. You haven't told me much about London, but then you were there so short a time. But I saw much. Mrs. Rossell could not have been kinder. For the first few days it was almost as if I had been a visitor. I was taken everywhere. I should like to see London before I die, mused her father. Somehow, I have never managed to get so far. Oh, we will see it together some day. There's one thing, said Mr. Hood, reflectively, that I wish especially to see, and that is Holborn Viaduct. It must be a wonderful piece of engineering. I remember thinking it out at the time it was constructed. Of course, you haven't seen it. I'm afraid not. We are very far away from the city. But I will go and see it on the first opportunity. Do, and send me a full description. His thoughts reverted to the views before them. After all, this isn't so bad. There's a great advantage in living so near the heath. I'm sure the air here is admirable. Don't you smell how fresh it is? And then one gets fond of the place one's lived in for years. I believe I should find it hard to leave Dunfield. Emily smiled gently. I wonder, he pursued, whether you have the kind of feeling that came to me just then. It struck me that, suppose anything happened, 
that would enable us to go and live in another place there would be a sort of ingratitude something like a shabby action in turning one's back on the old spot i don't like to feel unkind even to a town the girl glanced at him with meaning eyes here was an instance of the sympathetic relations of which she had spoken to wilfrid in these words were disclosed the origin of the deepest sensibilities of her own nature they pursued their walk across the common and into the tree-shaded lane emily tried to believe that this at length was really the country there were no houses in view meadows lay on either hand the leafage was thick but it was not mere prejudice which saw in every object a struggle with hard conditions a degeneration into coarseness a blight the quality of the earth was probably poor to begin with the herbage seemed of gross fibre one would not risk dipping a finger in the stream which trickled by the roadside it suggested an impure source and behold what creatures are these coming along the lane where only earth-stained rustics should be met two colliers besmutted wretches plodding homeward from the pit which is half a mile away yes their presence was in keeping with the essential character of the scene one might have had a harder life mused mr hood aloud when the pitmen were gone by i think there's a fallacy in that replied emily their life is probably not hard at all i used to feel that pity but i have reasoned myself out of it they are really happy for they know nothing of their own degradation by the by said her father presently how is young mr athel the young fellow who had to come home from college he is quite well again i think was emily's reply i suppose poor fellow he has a very weak constitution oh no i think not what is he studying for going into the church emily laughed it was a relief to do so isn't it strange she said how we construct an idea of an unknown person from some circumstance or piece of description i see exactly what your picture of mr athel is a feeble and amiable young man most likely with the shocking voice with which curates sometimes read the lessons she broke off and laughed again well said her father i admit i thought of him a little in that way i scarcely know why you could hardly have been further from the truth try to imagine the intellectual opposite of such a young man and you that will be far more like mr athel he isn't conceited my want of experience has an unfortunate tendency to make me think of young fellows in his position as unbearably vain it must be so hard to avoid it perhaps it is if they have the common misfortune to be born without brains other subjects engaged their attention when do you take your holiday father emily asked i think about the middle of this month it won't be more than a week or ten days don't you think you ought to go to cleethorpes if only for a day or two to suggest any other place of summer retreat would have been too alarming mr hood's defect of imagination was illustrated in this matter he had been somehow led years ago to pay a visit to cleethorpes and since then that one place represented for him the seaside others might be just as accessible and considerably more delightful but it did not even occur to him to vary it would have cost him discomfort to do so the apprehension of entering upon the unknown the present was the third summer which had passed without his quitting home anxiety troubled his countenance as emily made the proposal 
"'Not this year, I think,' he said, as if desirous of passing the subject by. "'Father, what possible objection can there be to my bearing the expense of a week at Cleethorpe's? "'You know how well I can afford it. Indeed, I should like to go. "'It is rather unkind of you to refuse.' "'This was an old subject of discussion. "'Since Emily had lived away from home, not only her father, but her mother just as strenuously, had refused to take from her any of the money that she earned. It had been her habit at first indirectly to overcome this resistance by means of substantial presence in holiday time, but she found such serious discomfort occasioned by the practice that most reluctantly she had abandoned it. For the understanding of the Hood's attitude in this matter, it must be realised how deeply their view of life was coloured by years of incessant preoccupation with pecuniary difficulties. The hideous conception of existence which regards each individual as fighting for his own hand, striving for dear life against every other individual, was ingrained in their minds by the inveterate bitterness of their own experience. When Emily had become a woman, and was gone forth to wrest from the adverse world her own subsistence, her right to what she earned was indefeasible, and affection itself protested against her being mulcted for their advantage. As for the slight additional expense of her presence at home during the holidays, she must not be above paying a visit to her parents. The little inconsistency was amiable enough. Father and mother both held forth to her in the same tone. You have the battle of life before you. It is a terrible one, and the world is relentless. Not only is it your right, but your very duty, to spare every penny you can. For if anything happened to prevent your earning money, you would become a burden upon us, a burden we would gladly strive to bear, but the thought of which will be very hard for yourself. If, on the other hand, your mother were left a widow, think how dreadful it would be if you could give her no assistance. You are wrong in spending one farthing more than your absolute needs require. To say you do it in kindness to us is a mere mistake of yours. The logic was not to be encountered. It was as irresistible as the social conditions which gave it birth. Emily had abandoned discussion on these points. Such reasoning cost her sickness of heart. In practice she obeyed her parents' injunctions, for she herself was hitherto only too well aware of the fate which might become her in consequence of the most trifling mishap. She knew that no soul in the world save her parents would think it a duty to help her, save in the way of bare charity. Naturally, her old point of view was now changed. It was this that led her to revive the discussion with her father, and to speak in a tone which Mr. Hood heard with some surprise. "'Next year, perhaps, Emily,' he said. "'After Surrey, I don't think you can really need another change. I am delighted to see how well you look. I, too, am remarkably well, and I can't help thinking your mother gets stronger. How do you find her looking?' "'Better than usual, I really think.' All the same, it is clearly impossible for you and her to live on year after year without any kind of change. Oh, my dear, we don't feel it. It's so different with older people. A change rather upsets us than otherwise. You know how nervous your mother gets when she is away from home. Their walk brought them round again to the top of the heath. Mr. Hood looked at his watch and found that it was time to be moving homewards. Tea was punctually at five. Mrs. Hood would take it ill if they were late, especially on Saturday. As they walked across the smooth part of the upper common, looking at the houses around, 
they saw coming towards them a gentleman followed by three dogs he was dressed in a light tweed suit and brandished a walking stick as if animal spirits possessed him strongly why here comes mr dagworthy remarked mr hood in a low tone though the other was still at a considerable distance he generally goes off somewhere on saturday afternoon what a man he is for dogs i believe he keeps twenty or thirty at the house there emily evinced just a little self-consciousness it was possible that mr dagworthy was stopped to speak for she had become in a measure acquainted with him in the preceding spring she was at home then for a few weeks before her departure for london and the baxendales who had always shown her much kindness invited her to an evening party at which dagworthy was present he had chatted with her on that occasion yes he was going to speak he was a man of five-and-thirty robust rather florid with eyes which it was not disagreeable to meet though they gazed with embarrassing persistency and a mouth which he would have done well to leave under the natural shelter of a moustache it was at once hard and sensual the clean shaving of his face gave his appearance a youthfulness to which his tone of speech did not correspond how do you do miss hood come once more into our part of the world then you have been in london i hear it was the tone of a man long accustomed to have his own way in life and not overmuch troubled with delicacies of feeling his address could not be called disrespectful but the smile which accompanied it expressed a sort of good-natured patronage perhaps inevitable in such a man when speaking to his clerk's daughter the presence of the clerk himself very little concerned him he kept his eyes steadily on the girl's face examining her with complete frankness his utterance was that of an educated man but it had something of the yorkshire accent a broadness which would have distressed the ear in a drawing-room emily replied that she had been in london it did not seem necessary to enter into details pleasant afternoon isn't it makes one want to get away to the moors i suppose you will be off somewhere soon with your family mr hood he would not have employed the formal prefix to his clerk's name but for emily's presence the father knew that and felt grateful not this year i think sir he replied with perfect cheerfulness of the three dogs that accompanied dagworthy one was a handsome collie this animal came snuffing at emily's hand and involuntarily glad perhaps to have a pretence for averting her face she caressed the silky ears fine head isn't it miss hood said dagworthy at once causing her to remove her hand quickly ay but i've a finer collie than that just walk in with me will you he added after a scarcely perceptible pause i always like to show off my dogs you're in no hurry i suppose just come and have a look at the kennels emily was deeply annoyed both because such a visit was in itself distasteful to her and on account of the irritation which she knew the delay would cause her mother she did not for a moment expect her father to refuse his position would not allow him to do so mr hood in fact murmured thanks after a mere half glance at his daughter and the three walked together to dagworthy's house the entrance of which was not fifty yards from where they were standing the dwelling was neither large nor handsome but it stood in a fine garden and had an air of solid well-being as soon as they had passed the gates they were met by a middle-aged woman carrying a child of two years old an infant of wonderfully hearty appearance at the sight of its father it chuckled and crowed dagworthy took it from the woman's arms and began a game which looked not a little dangerous with surprising strength and skill 
he tossed it up some feet into the air caught it as it descended tossed it up again the child shrieked with delight for all that the swift descent positively stopped its breath and made a hiatus in the screaming there that's about enough mr richard said the woman in broad dialect when the child had gone up half a dozen times she was nervous and kept holding out her arms involuntarily i don't over much fancy that kind of lackin what's more he's always right down fratchy after turn o that see now he never'd want you to stop do a done now mr richard here you are then take him in and tell them i want some tea say i have friends with me the child was carried away roaring obstreperously and dagworthy laughing at the vocal power displayed led the way round the back of the house here had been constructed elaborate kennels several dogs were pacing in freedom about the clean yard and many more were chained up much information was imparted to the visitors concerning the more notable animals some had taken prizes at shows others were warranted to do so one or two had been purchased at fancy prices mr hood now and then put a question as in duty bound to do emily restricted her speech to the absolutely necessary replies dagworthy conducted them into the house it appeared to be furnished in a solid old-fashioned way and the ornaments though few were such as might better have been dispensed with old dagworthy had come to live here some five-and-twenty years previously having before that occupied a small house in conjunction with his mill he had been one of the worthies of dunfield and in his time did a good deal of useful work for the town personally he was anything but amiable being devoid of education and refinement and priding himself on his spirit of independence which exhibited itself in mere boorishness though anything but miserly he had where his interests were concerned an extraordinary cunning and pertinacity he was universally regarded as one of the shrewdest men of business in that part of yorkshire and report credited him with any number of remarkable meannesses it was popularly said that old dick dagworthy would shrink from no dirty trick to turn a sixpence but was as likely as not to give it away as soon as he had got it his son had doubtless advanced the character of the stock and putting aside the breeding of dogs possessed many tastes of which the old man had no notion none the less he was credited with not a little of his father's spirit in business in practical affairs he was shrewd and active he never as poor hood might have testified paid a man in his employ a penny more than there was need and fell far short of the departed dagworthy's generosity to be at his mercy in a pecuniary transaction was to expect and to receive none for all that there was something in the man which hinted at qualities beneath the surface a glance a tone now and then which seemed on the point of revealing a hidden humanity when he chose he could be courteous he was so at present as he requested emily and her father to seat themselves in a large homely room which looked out upon the garden the woman who had carried the child reappeared and poured out cups of tea when she had left the room i must ask you to excuse the roughness of my establishment miss hood he said i have to make shift for the present with mrs jenkins she isn't as refined as she might be but she's been with us here for more than twelve years and i should be sorry to replace her with any other servant pieces of bread and butter of somewhat undue solidity were offered emily declined anything but a cup of tea 
she was very ill at ease though she succeeded in suppressing any manifestation of it dagworthy kept his gaze on her constantly now i know you didn't care very much about the dogs he said to her presently i think i've got something here that will be rather more in your line he brought from a corner of the room a large portfolio set it upon a chair in front of emily and exposed its contents these were a number of fine photographs of continental cathedrals and churches i bought these when i took my run through france and germany last year he explained i've something of a turn for architecture i believe at all events i know i like a fine building and i like to find out all i can about it he went through the collection with remarks which proved that he had certainly attained a rudimentary knowledge of the subject and that his appreciation was often keen when his technical understanding might be at fault the worst of it is he said at one point with the modesty which was a new feature in his conversation i can't pronounce the names properly now how do you read that miss hood to be sure i know it when i hear it have you ever been in france the negative reply came you'd like to see the old-fashioned streets in which some of these churches stand as soon as it was possible to do so emily looked meaningly at her father and he just as anxious to be on his way homeward rose for leave-taking dagworthy offered no opposition he went with them to the gates and shook hands with both then stood gazing after them as they walked across the common well i never knew young dagworthy anything like that before said mr hood when they were some distance from the gate i couldn't believe it when he asked us to go into the house i'm afraid mother will be very uneasy was emily's reply yes my dear i'm afraid she will let's walk sharply but he was really uncommonly pleasant i shall think a good deal better of him than i have done this was the only aspect of the afternoon's adventure which presented itself to mr hood emily was divided between relief at having got away from that persistent gaze and apprehension of what might meet them on their arrival at home the latter feeling was only too well justified mrs hood sat in the kitchen the window darkened when speech was at length elicited from her it appeared that a headache to which she was subject had come on in its severest form emily was at once active with remedies not that any of those that she urged were likely to avail themselves but because she was well aware that the more solicitude she showed the sooner her mother would resume her ordinary state mrs hood begged to be left to herself let them have their tea and leave her in the kitchen she was best there out of people's way it would soon be bedtime the evening was practically gone in the course of half an hour she was at length prevailed upon to come into the sitting-room and even to taste a cup of tea at first she had paid no attention to the reasons alleged for the unpunctuality little by little she began to ask questions on her own account petulantly but with growing interest still the headache was not laid aside and all spent a very dolorous evening in the relation these things have their humorous side emily may be excused if she was slow to appreciate it she knew very well that the crisis meant for her father several days of misery and perhaps in her youthful energy she was disposed to make too little allowance for her mother whose life had been so full of hardship and who even now was suffering from cares and anxieties the worst of which her daughter was not allowed to perceive after the girl's early departure to her bedroom the other two sat talking drearily 
After one of her headaches, Mrs. Hood always dwelt in conversation on the most wretched features of her life, with despairing forecast. Poor woman, there was little of a brighter kind to occupy her thoughts. Two occasions of grave anxiety were at present troubling her, and, though he spoke of them less, her husband in no lesser degree. It had just been announced to them that at the ensuing Christmas their rent would be raised, and at the same time the tenant who had for years occupied the house which they owned in the town of Barnhill had given notice of departure. There was a certain grotesqueness in the fact of James Hood being a proprietor of real estate. Twice an attempt had been made to sell the house in question, but no purchaser could be found. The building was in poor repair, was constantly entailing expense to the landlord, and, in the event of its becoming unoccupied, would doubtless wait long for another tenant. This event had come about, or would in a couple of months, and the loss of that five and twenty pounds a year would make the difficulty of existence yet more desperate. Once more, an attempt at sale must be made, in itself involving outlays which, however petty, could ill be borne, and to sell, even if it could be done, meant a serious loss of income. "'What did it mean, do you think?' Mrs. Hood asked, recurring to the subject of Dagworthy and his astonishing behaviour. She put the question dispiritedly, not venturing to hope for a solution that would help her to a more cheerful frame of mind. Hood scarcely dared to utter the words which came into his mind. "'You remember that they met at the Baxendales?' "'How did Emily behave?' the mother next inquired. "'She was very quiet. I don't think she liked it. "'We must bear in mind the kind of society she is used to. "'Young Dagworthy won't seem of much account to her, I fancy.' "'But he has a good education, hasn't he?' "'Pretty good, I suppose. "'He confessed to us, though, that he couldn't pronounce French words.' "'It's quite certain,' said Mrs. Hood, "'he wouldn't have invited you in if you had been alone.' "'Certain enough,' was the reply in a tone wholly disinterested. "'But it must have been just a fancy, a whim. "'Things of that kind don't happen nowadays.' "'Not to us, at all events,' murmured the other dejectedly. "'Well, there must come what will,' she added, "'leaning her head back once more, "'and losing interest in the subject. "'I hope nothing.' And expect nothing alas these two sitting alone in the dull little room speaking in disjointed phrases of despondency exchanging no look no word of mutual kindness had they not once loved each other with the love of youth and hope had it not once been enough to sit through long evenings and catch with earnestness each other's lightest word time had robbed them of youth and the injustice of the world's order had starved love to less than a shadow of itself, to a more habit of common suffering. Tender memories were buried in the grave of children, whom the resources of ever so modest a fortune would have kept alive. The present was a mere struggle to support existence, choking the impulses of affection. One would not murmur at the kindly order of life, whereby passion gives place to gentle habitudes and the fiery soul of youth tames itself to comely gravity. But that love and joy, the delights of eager sense and of hallowed aspiration, should be smothered in the foul dust of a brute combat for bread, that the stinted energies of early years should change themselves to the blasted hopes of failing manhood, in a world made ill by human perverseness. This is not easily, it may be not well, born with patience. 
put money in thy purse and again put money in thy purse for as the world is ordered to lack current coin is to lack the privileges of humanity and indigence is the death of the soul end of section 8 chapter 5 part 2